You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders and under our beds and in our closets. And together we'll realize, well, that's pretty that's dark. Pretty dark. perfect that is like old times man it's been a while so one of my favorite things that's happened this week is uh i had the plumber come back to fix the like pipe that burst in my guest bathroom yes and then we got to talk and every time he comes over he takes a look at my bar in my dining room Mm -hmm. he always comments on the whiskey like we always have a brief conversation about whiskey he's he's a connoisseur he's a connoisseur he's like man i don't drink every day but you know, man, I like to collect. I got a nice selection. No, I think I think it's nice. And he was telling me about how his grandpa used to have, because I, I mentioned I wanted to have like the old 60s style, like yeah. you have a whole section of your house that's like your nice bar. Yeah. And he was like, man, my grandpa had one of them. I think it's cool. It's super dope. And I really, really want one. But he starts telling me about his decanter that his wife got for him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, man, it's like a, it's like a globe, you know? And it's like, there's a pirate ship in the center of it. <laughs> it was so funny because if you see my my metal uh, pirate like ship, yes. the ship that's on my um on my bookshelf. Of course, I've seen it. He just goes it's in our movie. Man, that's a cool ship. I like that ship you got there. <laughs> but then he goes home that day. It's a cool ship. And he sends me a picture of his decanter. He texts <gasps> it to me. <laughs> yeah, you have like, made a friend. Christian? He was like, this is what I was talking about. It's pretty it's pretty cool. You have made a friend. And they say it's hard to make friends in your 30s. I am so proud of you. You brought this man into your house. Into my home multiple times. You became friends. Yeah. Wow. And he's coming back, I guess. He's coming so. back on Saturday. Yeah, it's super wow. exciting. <laughs> You've got a friend date on Saturday with mm. your new friend. <laughs> I should send him a clip that says it's like a you got a friend in me like video. Like find something. You know? Mm. Absolutely. I support this. He would never come back to my house ever. <laughs> but yeah, man, I don't, I don't think so. You can't come on too strong. <laughs> I make a friend and I come on so strong that they're no they're longer like, my friend anymore. No. <laughs> I don't know how to be friends Never with mind. Yeah. It's easier to be alone. Oh my God. It's so much easier to be it's alone. It's so but much easier to be alone. You never really are at the end of the day. It's not here. That's pretty dark. <laughs> <laughs> man, we're so good at this. Oh, man. No. We're we over got a year lucky. and a half in. Is it a year and a half? I don't know how long it's been. I know my name's Christian. That's all I know. I know my name's Kaylin. It's late. We just recorded part one. Now we're doing part two. We are coming at you with coming part two of our guys. introduction to Courage the Cowardly Dog. We're both slap happy. We are. And um, if you thought I was punch drunk in part one, just you wait. <laughs> and Riggins, just you wait. I'm about to be. Anybody know what that's from? Anybody? Anybody? Just you. It's Hamilton. No. What you said, just you wait. Oh, I mean, I'm proud of you, okay? I'll take that. I'll accept that. I mean, wait you say it. no to Hamilton? I said, just you wait, Henry Higgins. Oh, I missed that part. I was talking about something else. I was I was talking over you. Eliza, Eliza Doolittle. There's also an Eliza in Hamilton. <laughs> Look at you. And Guys, I've been teaching him. And you said that one of the earliest versions of Courage was named Hamilton. I did. I said that in part one. Oh my God. Look I'm at learning all the- so much. You know what else though? <laughs> I left my whiskey outside. You have to go get your whiskey. I'm going to go get it. Okay. And so put a little we'll play brief, some elevator music brief intermission time. right here. Mm. 
The Cowardly Dog, weekdays at 10.30 on Cartoon Network. And we're back. We're back. You guys better believe it. So. I want to learn about courage. Yeah, let's dive in. Let's talk about courage. I'm super pumped. To give you a brief recap, if you have, you know, it's been a minute since you listened to part one, we left off where John Dilworth has created this short, Chicken from Outer Space, and gotten attention from Hanna-Barbera. Uh, well, he got that attention before. But anyway, yeah. Hanna-Barbera funded this short. They put it together. It aired on What a Cartoon. It was a cartoon cartoon on What a Cartoon. It was a cartoon cartoon on What a Cartoon in oh 1996. God. What a cartoon. And from there, he went to Hollywood. He was pitching. He wanted to really bring the show to life, whether it was as a film, a show. I'm not sure exactly what his end goal was at that point in time. Sure. But I do know that he wanted to keep his animation studio, Stretch Films, operational and alive and well, where he was giving back to a lot of the animators, creators, dreamers, drawers, painters, all of the folks that were helping him bring to life his short films at the time. Mad respect. It took a couple years and some convincing, it seems, for Hanna-Barbera and Cartoon Network, but they agreed to allow him to produce Courage the Cowardly Dog in his studio in New York. Mm-hmm. So that's where we left right. off. Right. So we talked about because he didn't want to. He didn't want to uproot everybody and move them to. That's California. what I think. I mean, I, it wasn't explicitly stated, but right, I think right, that's right. the the vibe. We can guess. So he's a loyal guy, and he wants to help other people succeed. And yeah. he's very compassionate and curious and creative, and that's really the mind that all of this, you know, sprang from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sprung from, came from. Nice guys don't finish last, <laughs> ladies. Not when you're John Dilworth. Ladies. So the deal is done. The series has now been ordered and it's time to get to work on Courage. Mm, Let's do it. So John finds himself set up in his studio in New York, just like he wanted, responsible for directing and co-writing a whole series, as well as leading a team of nearly 100 people. Wow. His formula for doing this was that he would personally (laughs) accept responsibility. Sounds like us, honestly. (laughs) He would personally accept responsibility for 70% of the show's quality himself, which, how do you measure that? (laughs) I don't know. I don't think he knew either. It's an OCD thing. (laughs) It is. Honestly, it feels like that. Definite. There is some neurodivergent. There are some neurodivergent themes in this, which there have to be, right? If you've watched Courage, if you've seen the show. Yeah. There have to be, and I am you don't know, here you, for there's it. There's no way you can capture that element of fear and anxiety. These are my people. Uh, in, in a character who then can overcome his his fear mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Courage ain't so cowardly. In a semi-effective way, mm-hmm. every time, without knowing what that feels like. Absolutely true. Yeah. Very, very well said. Oh, thank you. So, like I said, he accepted responsibility for 70% of the show's quality himself. And somehow, this formula worked. Yeah. The visuals produced from this show still circulate the internet very widely, whether in meme form or not, <laughs> proving Dilworth's mastery of proportions, depth, coloring, and his ability to get into our heads as kids in yep. the late 90s and early 2000s. And with any luck, as adults. Hopefully. His visuals, his ideas and concepts were innovative, risky, and seemed to come from his mind like a fountain of endless, mm. weird ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that in the most endearing way. Like the pipe that burst in my bathroom. Yeah. A fountain. <laughs> so much water. <laughs> to quote him in one of the interviews that I read, uh, 
I'll give a disclaimer here in this episode as well. He did interviews with Fort Hayes University and the cartoon scientist. So I'll be pulling from some of those interviews from 2019 and 2022, respectively. Sweet. Just to get some information from his perspective. And I'll also reference some other articles here shortly. Yeah, it's cool. But he said that he was always attracted to mixed media. He said, for me, I made it a personal Mm -hmm. challenge to achieve integration among the varying mediums and have believability to show illusion is multidisciplinary. Mm. So it was very important for him to mix the media. That was huge. And that is one of the things that makes courage so scary and stand out all these years later. Because when you have a certain style of animation and then you have a different style of animation layered in and it looks totally different, it automatically, because you're so used to what you're looking at, Mm -hmm. suddenly it has this otherworldly surreal quality to it that your brain hasn't quite processed yet, especially when you're... I don't know, eight years old. Exactly. And you're like, oh my God, why is that so different? Why is it so creepy compared to courage, compared to the world he lives in? Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty smart. A lot of it had to do with the depth of the the, the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just those mixed medias, mediums. A lot of the CGI characters are some of the scariest yeah. that I can remember from childhood. It's it's the CGI compared to the hand-drawn animation that's so It is so stark. off-putting. Yeah. So off-putting. Mm. I love it. God, I love it. He was asked in the cartoon scientist interview about visual influences, like what influenced his unique perspective, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They brought up American Gothic, the pitchfork, the farmers. Absolutely. Standing. They said, you know, did that influence you at all? And he pretty much said no. (laughs) He was like, no, (laughs) not really. Uh, Which is so funny to me because it's like that. It does seem. I mean, in a logical person's mind, it seems to play together pretty well. I would assume that. But he said not consciously, not consciously. He mentioned being influenced by depression era photography of Dorothea Lange. Oh, shoot. That was, he said that he spent a lot of time studying photographs captured by Dorothea Lange. The feeling, the emotion of those images, he said he feels like bled into a lot of the visuals for courage because it is this somewhat, it it looks as though it could be depression era Mm -hmm. homestead, you know, a farm. Absolutely does. And I think a lot of it came from that. That reaches so deep. Mm-hmm. To like inside of me, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, maybe it's because of, we've been spending so much time like seeing how the Depression era did affect so much of the media from this time. I mean, we just talked about it with Pinocchio. We talked yes. about it with uh, the Halloween series we did, mm-hmm. and now it the visual aesthetics of the Great Depression became the background and the setting for Courage the Cowardly Dog. Absolutely. I mean, holy shit. This is incredible how all these things are connecting and overlapping. He was born in- This is unreal. 63, actually on Valentine's Day. Uh, (laughs) Cupid baby. Cupid baby. And I think, I don't know, like what he grew up with his parents experiencing in the Great Depression Mm -hmm. may have really stuck with him in terms of the- you can just feel kind of the Im- the imprint of that trauma. Sure, yeah. I mean... And how it plays through. Maybe they talked about it, you know? If you want to know more about his history, listener, uh, John Dilworth's history, you should listen to part one if you haven't done that yet. Mm. By having his hand-drawn backgrounds reproduced in Photoshop, he felt like they were on the cutting edge of technology at the time. Probably were, though. I think, you know, advanced yeah. I don't know if I'd say the cutting edge. Maybe <laughs> well, like a, you know, butter knife. <laughs> I mean, Photoshop was fairly new then, in the 90s. It was. It was fairly new. But just the idea of computer animation, we were getting into that with Disney. We were getting into that with certain studios as the century was turning. You just said butter knife. I did, yeah. <laughs> uh, cutting edge. I love that. That's great. 
I really like how you said that I said butter knife like five minutes after. I <laughs> you had to, you had an actually important point to make and I had to wait. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you. No, oh, man. Pinocchios. Man. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> what gets me is the idea of me just being totally off on that totally point. Totally oblivious. Like being a, a podcaster and you just like trailing off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. The success of Courage the Cowardly Dog and the way that they seemingly knew no bounds yeah. was Dilworth claims due to the fact that they delivered all 104 Courage shorts on time and on budget. Hey, that's how you do it. <laughs> so the network had very little to worry about. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I had been the network and I was seeing what was coming back, I maybe would have worried a little bit. <laughs> but hey, <laughs> to quote Cogsworth. If it ain't Baroque. <laughs> All right. Okay. Don't fix it. I see the pun. I also feel like the physical distance that they had from the network probably helped with this as well. They didn't have a whole lot of oversight because, like Dor said, they were getting shit done. Mm -hmm. They were making it happen and they didn't need to be micromanaged because the content was being produced at the exact rate that it needed to be. You think it's because they were living in the uh, the future? With yes. The time, so the time difference. The time zone differences, the regions. Man, my ADHD brain just started singing Bo Burnham. There were always a few hours mm -hmm. ahead, so they had time to buy. That's probably it, honestly. Oh, this on my desk by Monday The way that morning. I think about that, though, is that they were they were a few hours ahead, so it was harder for them. California had it easy. I haven't things, really- Things hit their desk. I haven't really thought this you through. You haven't really figured out time zones. We know this. <laughs> I just, I'm just trying to be a really good podcast host. You're doing, you're doing a great job. One of the most unnerving pieces of the horror production puzzle is always the sound design and the music. So essential. Especially since after the first season, Courage spoke less and less, which caused, perhaps intentionally, the young audience to rely heavily on sound effects and music for emotional cues and understanding. Hmm. Yeah. In an interview with the Fangoria blog, Jody Gray, who was one of the lead composers for the show, said that John Dilworth didn't want it to be like a kid's cartoon at all. He wanted them to score it cinematically, like it was a horror movie. Right. He said they were encouraged to do the darkest, craziest stuff that they could possibly imagine. That's wicked cool. And imagine they did. <laughs> That's so cool. I love how sound is just already something we understand as humans. Like, mm -hmm. we already can process. Like, if you heard a tone or a note or an undertone or something from a horror film, and you didn't know what a horror film was or what even a movie was, it would still make you uncomfortable and kind yes. of afraid. Music. We know sounds. Ha, like the emotion in music is not conscious. There, I mean, it is. It's very conscious for the people that make it. Obviously, there's a yeah. lot of skill that goes into it. What I mean is hearing music, the, the reaction that our bodies have to it mm -hmm. is almost subconscious. It's. I wonder what that is. I, have st I can send you some articles, my friend. Please do. These are things that I like and Seriously. care about. And I wonder like how universal is that? Like not even just humans, but. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm just mm -hmm. curious. I don't know what I'm talking about, but. I mean, I think there's something to be said, like the primal, something that sounds threatening to you, something that sounds mm -hmm. dangerous. Anything that has a survival instinct at all that can hear sounds, mm -hmm. I think there's something that we can perceive. It almost, it, we can also call back to, which episode was it? One of our Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes where we talked about music as a form of worship. Dark music. Dark music, obviously, duh. Music as a form of worship in almost every religion and culture. On the face of the earth. Yeah. It's it's always been around. For a reason. <laughs> Even when we were just banging things together, we were making music. We were making sounds. Mm -hmm. Sounds always meant yep. something because you can feel sounds. You don't just hear them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not meant to like 
discriminate <laughs> against the hearing impaired of our, you know, audience, maybe. <laughs> well, they're not uh, listening tr- anyway, so. Oh, God. <laughs> we, uh, but like you said, you can feel it. There's something to be yes. felt. Not to totally derail you, but it's okay. to further emphasize the fact that that's way cool that they just went full-blown horror film aesthetic. He said, make it as scary as you can. Incredible. And they really, they did so. You're going to like some of this. So Jody Gray worked with fellow composer uh, Andy Ezrin, and they composed each episode from scratch. Nice. They only reused 10% of musical cues from season to season. Wow. That might not sound like a huge deal if you've never like worked in or around film. Yeah. But if you have, you know what a feat that is. That is huge. To not reuse things, to not reuse themes, you know, to make everything new from scratch. Yeah. A, so a standard practice with series like this, shows that are long running, they come up with their themes and they have a library of themes of music mm-hmm. that they reuse throughout the course of the show. Right. And it, it rarely changes. And I mean, I have nothing against like a running recurring theme because it's something right. that I can recognize. Well, I like it because it, it also helps build the brand of the show, like through sound. Definitely. But that's And wild. I feel like they still did that, but they also were creating something new every time. That's super cool. They scored everything. For the series, including an 11-minute opera for the episode The Ride of the Valkyries. They, <laughs> wow. they wrote an opera <laughs> for the show. Wild. It also makes me think of Hey Arnold when they did the play on yeah. Carmen. Uh-huh. But of course, they didn't create Carmen as an opera. They no. just rewrote the lyrics. They parodied Carmen. I actually watched that this past summer, that episode. I love I was that episode. very impressed with... We'll, we'll cover it because yeah. we love Hey Arnold around here. We'll talk about it. I love <laughs> that episode. It's a good one. But yeah, these guys wrote a whole new opera. <laughs> Man, the talent behind the show. Jody also feels like they were breaking the mold a little bit by using some pretty avant-garde techniques or like filmmaking techniques in their compositions. Right. He mentioned A Clockwork Orange as being one of his influences. Wow. Because okay. they often created scores that were made much more eerie by almost working in opposition to the visuals of the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something about that, that is so unsettling. Yeah. Disquieting. One might say. It's like playing classical music or something that's an opera in the background of like a murder scene. Yes, exactly. It's the inverse of what you expect to happen. Mm -hmm. That can be so much more unsettling. And by doing, yes, subverting the expectation can make Mm -hmm. it, just like you were saying with the animation, it's the same principle with music. Right. Doing the unexpected makes it that much more frightening. Especially because it gives that something that is innocent and beautiful it gives it that tinge of darkness. Yeah. The the Clockwork Orange uh, reference they were talking about was like an assault scene. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's the music doesn't match, but for good reason. That's just Kubrick being a genius. I mean, he <laughs> I don't I don't know if he did, was the first to do that, but he definitely was good at that kind of thing too. So for sure. Very cool that, that was like an influence. It's cool that a, like a film, really a director, but yeah. a film from the seventies, a style carried through into the late nineties in this children's animation. It's yeah. all there, y'all. It's all connected. I love it. I love it's it. It's all connected. That is why we're here. That's the kind of shit <laughs> that makes me say that's why we're here. Yeah. So moving along in our production discussion, we often talk about the casting. Yeah. Because, okay, so we talked about the pilot last time and that one guy did everything. Yes. Howard Hoffman did everything. And I immediately was aware of the voices being different. For sure. From what I remember from Courage. <laughs> I do have some information, not to disappoint you, but the casting process itself was 
shockingly difficult to find information about. Mm. And I was bummed because I wanted to kind of know the story. Right, yeah. But for the purposes of this episode, I do have some history on our main characters. And then we can kind of introduce other folks as we meet them down the line in our yeah. season binge. This is our second season binge, y'all. Season binge. Can't wait. We're going to go through all of season one of Courage. If we haven't mentioned that yet, we're pumped. Better believe it. In the role of Courage, we have Marty Grabstein. He got his start in a film called Bury the Evidence in 1998. And from there, he landed the role of Courage. Hmm. He has voiced the character throughout the run of the show, and on into some Cartoon Network video games and spin-off shorts. He also appeared in several iterations of Law & Order and even did an episode of The Blacklist in 2021. Oh, nice. Supposedly, as of 2012, he was also driving trolleys in New York and entertaining the passengers. And I can <laughs> totally see that. That's weird. What? <laughs> like trolleys, like on the street, you know, yeah, but buses, transportation, <laughs> trolleys. What? <laughs> You're this iconic... Voice actor, and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. you're just driving trolleys? Driving trolleys. Okay. That's, yeah. I don't know that he still does, but in 2012, supposedly, he was doing that. Okay. I, confession, I've already watched a couple of the first episodes back just to get a feel for the show and remind myself what it's all about. Yeah. And I really didn't remember Courage talking all that much. Me neither. I just remember like the nervous, like whimpering Courage sounds mostly. The squeals. And the such. squeals and the... And of course, his his uh, signature like scream, his yell. Exactly. Yeah. His scream, which is still, you know, Marty Grabstein's voice. Yeah. But of course, when he did speak, I remembered the voice so well because it's somehow, again, not the voice that you would expect to come out of a little pink Things dog. Things I do for love. That's all I remember. <laughs> Things I do for love. Exactly. That's the Marty Grabstein line, right? Love it, yeah. In one of the interviews, John Dilworth even mentioned that he made the dog pink. He is such a fascinating person, y'all. Like, seriously. Just listening to John Dilworth talk, it's literally like somebody came from another planet. Like, I he, look his him up. perception on humanity is so different like he, he's he's mm -hmm. looking from a like a bird's eye view at humanity like he's not even one of us yeah it's crazy goals really honestly hashtag yeah. goals but he mentioned that he made the dog pink specifically because he was curious about how it would be received because pink is perceived or was at the time especially as anti-masculine yeah he said what he found from that <laughs> kind of tongue-in-cheek he said it what he found from that is exactly how much influence it did have when he struggled to merchandise courage to young boys. Wow. It's just a color. Color oh my God. has no gender. Colors don't even exist. We they don't. <laughs> like, we just perceive them. It's just our eyeballs and our brain telling us what it's something looks like. <laughs> it's all light. It's all refracted light. Refracted light. That's just so crazy to me because I would, I would have loved a courage right? plushie stuffed animal. It's insane to me that color is so is so gendered it is so gendered just the indoctrination of young male children at this point in time that pink is for girls just it makes me so it's still mad happening because it's a i know it still it happens today but especially back then there was no there was no opposition back then back then it was just like understood no, now it at was, least yeah. if you say it something like that a lot of people will look at you sideways sure 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 or at least i mean if some, you look at the, the the sitcoms of that era they're still making gay jokes absolutely don't be a girl oh yeah are you a girl are you a woman like yep. I'm, i was re-watching friends recently oh friends is the worst of them it's all it's horrible it's a great show but it's all over the place but one of the first lgbtq relationships 
on TV. I mean, they were very forward thinking, but they still they still had to make jokes about it at the same time, which I can appreciate a joke. I still think it's funny at times. Sure. But when it does affect the upbringing of children who should not be thinking so binary, that's when it's a problem. Like mm-hmm. we should be moving forward as a as a culture. Like right. absolutely. And I think on the whole we are, but you know. Color's insane. And I mean, I love that he had that experiment, but it sucks that he couldn't merchandise he, courage. I know. But for him to just be like, I think I should make it pink. Yeah. Just Which to is, see. <laughs> just because I'm curious. It's also funny because he says pink and I'm over here. I have always thought courage was purple. Me too. I, I think of him as purple. I mean, he's he's pink, I guess. We used his based shade. Based on Dilworth's words. We used his shade of purple as part of our brand colors. Yeah. And I mean, I mean kind of. Different, different iterations, maybe different um, prints, I guess, or different yeah. copies of the material. Yeah. The colors probably do change slightly. Sure, sure. But still. But I think so too. I think like courage is kind of a purple color. It's a masculine pink. He's not masculine and that's okay. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm not like, oh my Godding at you. I'm just, no, oh my Godding in general. He's gender neutral courage. He, he can be, if he is indeed, in fact, he can be male and not be masculine. True. Boom. Like shocking, crazy. I just don't understand why that's so important. Mm-hmm. Toxic masculinity has destroyed so much yeah. For so many generations. You're telling me. Anyway, so I found an interview with Marty Grabstein mm-hmm. at a convention back in 2018. This guy is entertaining, but he is like, <laughs> he is such a loose cannon. All right. I was, you know, I watched this interview hoping to get some insight into the show, you know, maybe Marty's experiences being cast on the show or some of the experiences that he had, but he spent like the entire interview talking to the camera he he did some of his famous line the things we do for love <laughs> you know he did some of his nice. lines and everything but he was just kind of heckling the interviewer and like <laughs> looking over and saying so and so at that booth is doing this like he was just everywhere <laughs> and it didn't seem like an act like this just seemed like who he was That's so funny as a person but the voice still when when he was speaking it was strange for me to see that is man. it his voice Marty's. He's not putting on a voice. He's actually, that's how he not, speaks. It's like an amplification of his gotcha. voice, I would say. Gotcha. It's still very close. It's like uh, Justin Roiland, who's the voice of um, Rick and Morty. Oh. <laughs> yeah. He's He's gotten into some legal trouble recently. <laughs> oh my God. I'm not going to look it up. Wait, hold on. There it is. Domestic violence. <laughs> Jesus. No. <laughs> oh my God. I think no. I think there was also like a, what's the term? Like false imprisonment or something. Like I think he like held her hostage at some point. Oh my god, it's insane. That's pretty dark. That's pretty dark. <laughs> he, he's in trouble. But that, but when you hear him speak, you you hear Rick. You hear his characters right. in his voice. But it, he yeah yeah I get what you mean, man. Yeah, and these creators, you know Marty and John Dilworth himself, that are out there, like so out there, but in an endearing way. I think personally, eccentric, but not criminal. Playing Muriel. Was the late Thea White, who actually just passed away in 2021. Hmm. Her primary credit was as Muriel in all of the same Courage iterations as Marty. Okay. Including the, I've been waiting to mention this, the straight out of nowhere Scooby-Doo and Courage crossover from 2021. Oh my God. I haven't seen it yet. That was a but thing. But it does exist. No, I haven't seen it either, but I heard about it. It does exist. <laughs> he does A lot exist. of people, I feel like, had been waiting on a they crossover like that for a really long time. And it finally happened in 2021. Yeah, it's pretty cool. However, John Dilworth was not involved in it. I will say that much. Really? But Marty Mm. and Thea both reprised their roles and it was released posthumously for her. Wow. Thanks for your contribution. Yeah. Thank you, Thea. 
The character of Muriel was based on a Scottish woman that John Dilworth knew, hmm. Muriel Barry. Okay. And I can't quite work out how he knew her. Um, he did kind of a tribute to her when she passed away on his YouTube channel that I mentioned in the last episode. Stretch Films has a whole YouTube. Yeah. Uh, but he did a tribute to her and he talked about how she influenced the character of Muriel, this woman that he knew. Of course, her taking her name, but he said her white hair, her light, the way she spoke were all incorporated into the character. Mm. And he said that his joy during the production was phoning her in Edinburgh and he would have regular conversations with her, Muriel Mondays, he said he called them. <laughs> nice. And he would just write down all the amazing stuff that she would say and like work it into scripts and everything. So he had this person that he, you know, was friends with. Yeah. That inspired the character. That's amazing. I think that's really cool. It really shows a lot of his compassion and his uh, humanity. Like, it's just, he's yeah. such, yeah. he's so intense, but in that otherworldly way of like, he's looking into your soul when he looks at you. Mm -hmm. And he just doesn't care about any of the other bullshit. He is, he's up here. You know, he's always on a different level. Man. It's pretty wild. I'll have what he's having. <laughs> right? Me too. <laughs> Playing Eustace. Was voice booga, actor booga, booga. <laughs> Lionel Wilson. Uh, Lionel Wilson passed away after the show wrapped in 2003. Hmm. He was by far the most experienced of the main cast, having done tons of voice work for different shorts and animated projects from the 50s through the 80s. Wow. Including Tom Terrific on Captain Kangaroo, <laughs> All right. which was his first television role in 1949. Wow. I know. I think the furthest back we've gone on like modern voice actors is like maybe the 50s or 60s, like early 60s. Mm -hmm. But for this guy to go back to... 49. 49. Damn. It's pretty, pretty crazy. That's wild. John Dilworth maintains that the Eustace character was never intended as a direct reflection of any specific person or political affiliation. Hmm. He admits that Eustace does embody attitudes that are popular today. Yeah. I was reading a Vulture article written by Sean Malin. I feel like he put it pretty well. He said, in those episodes, Eustace's cap was brown. Mm -hmm. In 2019, it would probably be red. Damn. I have in my notes, damn. <laughs> damn. I mean, yeah, that's not that's not off. That's not wrong. I don't think it's off base. MAGA. Yeah, he put it well. I think it's fair. <laughs> I think it's more than fair. A lot more fair than I was about Ted Turner in the last episode. <laughs> but again, complicated politics, everybody. There are complicated politics at play always. And if you're tuning in for this the first time for this series... We are from the South. Oh, we yes. Are from we are from the, the Gulf Coast. We live deep in the deep, deep South. And we have dealt with this our whole lives. And I was, we were familiar with things like Rocket Power because we had beaches near us. Yes. And so we kind of understood their town, their coastal city. The coastal vibe. city. Mm -hmm. But I equally understood this shack in the middle of the, the, the desert mm -hmm. with the windmill and the, the middle crotchety old man. It's Kansas or Nebraska. You know, it's middle America. It made sense to me. It definitely made sense to me also, but I will, while we're here, while we're talking about this, I'll go ahead and say like it, mm -hmm. I, I personally, like I've grown up on the coast. Yep. I like the water. I don't even like to, I don't love to swim. I don't like to be, I get motion sick on a boat. Like I go to the beach, but I don't get in the water. <laughs> uh, I do, but it's like. It has to be exactly the right temperature, the right mood, yeah. the right vibe. And uh, no jellyfish. I definitely will. And no jellyfish because I get stung every freaking time every I time. get in the water. Every time. Every time. But also you can see the oil rigs from the from the beach and it's not- In a lot of cases, yeah. It's not here. that attractive. No. But I've grown up in that environment. I've always been near the water. And so I, 
I feel connected to that in some way. If I can't get to water, I feel claustrophobic. Yeah. And so the thought of being in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> nowhere. Being landlocked, that adds to the fear factor for yeah. me. Because to me, it's like, where do you go? <laughs> it's isolated. And it's not, like I said, it's not like I love to be on the water or anything, but like I have to be near it. Yeah, I get it. Don't know why, but I do. I get it. Another iconic voice from the show was British actor Simon Preble playing the computer. Oh, I for- I always forget about the computer. I do too. Man, AOL is the messaging, ooh, Google and stuff. <laughs> this was the age where, yes, I was just getting onto the internet. Like mm-hmm. we, we mentioned that before. I was just getting onto the internet. Um, this was what, 99? 99, correct. Yeah, I was, I was all up in the computer. He had been acting in British TV series throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, hmm. and even did a stint on As the World Turns before he landed the role of the computer on Courage. Nice. Okay. I really wish I knew the story behind how he was cast because his voice might be one of the scariest to me on the show. Really? Of the computer? Yes. Because usually it was intended for comic relief, you know, if you're looking at it from a more mature perspective. Yeah. There was this dry, unflinching, and occasionally mocking tone from the computer. And it's one of the things I remember most about the show, but it also almost always reminds Courage of how alone he is in that moment. That is true. It kind of sucks the life out of things for me because it is so sterile. I think that's part of it. It's it's so, so sterile. It's sterile, sterile, but it's also when he's actively searching for help, right? He's looking for help. He needs help. He needs comfort. He needs something. And this computer is just stoic, sterile, dry. He's denied it. Exactly. It's when he's denied assistance. Yeah, because then we we apply that to ourselves as children and that becomes part of our psyche, like our psychological development. Yes. And that's that's, I think that's how we think as adults. The computer, Courage's relationship with the computer has defined some weird things in my head. Mm-hmm. And I hope we'll be able to explore a lot more of that during our season binge. Ooh, I think yeah. we have plenty of opportunity to get into some of that. In much so more excited. nuanced ways. Yes. And it might also affect why we care so much for our animals that we keep. Yeah. Because we, we personify, personify them. them. We do. And we I feel like a lot of people do that, but they like they do. But like we perceive tones in their vocal patterns of like we do are you asking for help like can i Mm -hmm. help you can i do something for you and take care of you and make you feel better yeah because we saw courage be perpetually denied denied yeah his uh cries for help man and there's so much we didn't do with that and like the parent-child relationship and everything but we've got we've got a lot to cover courage is like the is he the like the poster child for mental health awareness. It feels like it sometimes. Like, can we just make him unofficially, <laughs> officially, unofficially? He should be. I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm down for it. We'll go through. I feel like we've got a lot to go through with that. And I'm about to get into the dark stuff. Man, I'm so but I want to give one last fun fact Sweet. about the cast. And that is that John Dilworth himself voiced the Nowhere Newsman, which we hear giving foreboding broadcasts on Eustace's television set in many of the episodes. We're here to interrupt this program to bring you... That's it. Cowards the Cow the Dog Show! <laughs> Cowards the Cow the Dog! The Nowhere Newsman. That's so fun. That kind of wraps up my conversations on production Sweet. part of it but i also want to you know i'll be drawing in some of those themes because we we hadn't well i have quotes from some of the writers and the people that were involved in the making of the show yeah. throughout this segment but what i want to talk about here is all of the pretty darkness mm, that beautiful beautiful darkness in one of the interviews dilworth said some of the things he wanted to explore with the cartoon included loss of self the industry of slavery 
domestic violence or the threat of it, oh, yeah. animal cruelty, personal freedoms. He said, I could go on, but audiences are turned on to the material and they could offer up the good juices. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> this is what he said. I find mm. that rather ambitious. And knowing him, which I don't, I don't know him, <laughs> but knowing what I know of him and the parasocial relationship that I've formed with him in the last couple weeks of research, <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of what he's saying here is tongue in cheek. But it's like scarily accurate at the same time. Mm. You know, he's kind of overstating it, right? He's saying like, we wanted to explore all of these deep and insanely like complex issues with our cartoon. Right. Like, real matter of fact, that's how he kind of puts with it together. With our children's cartoon. With our children's cartoon. And it's like, but dude, you actually, you did. But we've <laughs> said time and time again that the best children's content has been created with this like equal, equalizing voice I don't know, between adult to child. Mm -hmm. Like you don't talk to children like they're children. You, you talk, talk to, to them like, like, they're, they're like they're humans. Exactly. You know, and you treat them as equals in this way. For sure. So, I mean, he may not have really fully understood what he was doing, which, you know, hearing about him, maybe he did. Mm -hmm. But for him to be like, yeah, we're going to explore all these super complex, devastating issues yeah. with this kid show. Yeah, that's it. That's probably why it was so... Like it, why it, it hit us so deep and it stuck with us. It, got, it dug its, you know, its hooks into us and it, it stayed. It's carried us this far. Absolutely. Wow. It's just like giving new layers, I feel like, to the, mm -hmm. the podcast that you and I came to the table, like intending to create. <laughs> I mean, let's lay those out again one more time. Like, this is the content. The things that he, he yeah. mentioned. What, domestic violence? He said loss cruelty. of self, the industry of slavery, domestic violence or the threat of it, animal cruelty, personal freedoms. The threat of domestic, domestic violence. violence. It was always right here. It was always the shadow behind you. Like That was one of my main takeaways from Eustace. Yes. To Muriel. Like, always. You kind of get the feeling that courage is always there to protect Muriel from Eustace. Yep. In a way that it's behind the scenes. We don't get to see that. That's... Pretty, pretty dark. In dark. But hold, hold your horses, okay? Because we're gonna get to some of that. I got a lot of horses. It's hard to hold them back. <laughs> David Stephen Cohen, who was the show's head writer, said in an interview with Fangoria blog, mm -hmm. "So many of the episodes were a parody or homage to certain horror or science fiction movies." Yeah, like the Chicken from Outer Space. It's hard to point at a horror great that didn't influence us at some point. Mm. Everything I've ever experienced influences everything I write. I was a sponge for TV and movies growing up. I've seen that a lot in these in these creators. Mm -hmm. They directly just continually pull from these classic things over and over and they make them new again. I'm super excited to like pinpoint some of these references, like direct references as we go through our season binge. Me too. And I'm not going to list any specific references, but to give an overview listener, to, to give an appetizer for some of the things we're going to talk about. Mm. Some of these may not be in season one, but just things, villains, spooky ookies that Courage <laughs> dealt with. We told you it was going to be a wet episode. Now let's wet <laughs> our whistles. Mm. These are some of the more outrageous and intense things that were allowed to be featured on this kid's show. Yeah. Hauntings by flesh-eating people. Hauntings by a chillingly musical mummy raining plagues upon their home. Realmsies. Hauntings by hypnotizing. That's it. <laughs> Hauntings by hypnotizing traveling salesmen, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is an MLM nightmare if they can actually hypnotize you. <laughs> Hauntings by their own shadows come to life. Yeah. And this is what I promised earlier. 
even thinly veiled exploration of the harm of shame in queer relationships yep. and the abuse that they suffer at the hands of a mobster. Oh, yeah. Gangster. That's one of my favorite episodes. I cannot wait. Uh, well, so this was in season four, but they had clearly like earned their wings with the network at this yeah. point. Like They were like, OK, yeah, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. And John Dilworth admitted that this was meant to be an LGBTQ-themed episode. He said they, those themes were absolutely at play. Mm -hmm. However, he said, this admission will only upset the status quo and perhaps rebound back on me. We still live in a dominating, narrow world cosmos, and tolerance is not tolerated. Boom. That's what he said. <laughs> Nailed it. Now getting into some of what you were just saying. Mm. The Fanquery blog did a really great job of discussing some of what I also find to be the absolute darkest elements in the show, including Courage's abuse. Yep. Mm -hmm. The week-to-week -week villains almost paled in comparison for me to the torment that Courage was regularly subjected to mm -hmm. from Eustace. Yep. He often scared Courage on purpose and subjected him to less than ideal living conditions. Yeah. I mean, there were instances where he, like, was physically violent with Courage, I'm pretty sure. He's brutal. Especially when, like, when Muriel wasn't involved or wasn't looking. Right. It was always like, I can do this to you because I can't. I can get away with it now. I can get away with it. Yep. Yeah. God. And too many people think that way. <sighs> too many people think that way. <sighs> and this also truly exemplified the fact that for many, many children... Even their guardians are not safe. Listener, if you have experiences with this, I am so deeply sorry. And I, I am wondering, you know, how much people could relate. I could relate to Courage for different reasons than that specifically. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, you know, how many people can relate to that about yeah. the Courage story. Yeah, I was never sought out and, and abused in that way. Not in a very intentional way. Right. I haven't prepared any of the stats on this. Maybe we can in future episodes. But it is a fact um, statistically proven that majority of children who are subjected to some kind of abuse or anything like that, it is by a guardian or someone that they know personally or someone who lives in the household with them. Overwhelmingly. Like it usually is that the call comes from inside the house. Yes. And I think courage again, was an example of this and like represented this for many, many kids. He was like a, a almost a voice for that perspective. He told kids that you're not alone. I'm doing this too. We're in this together. Yeah. I'm scared, but hey, I can figure this out mm -hmm. because you can figure this out because we can figure this out. And every week he did and that built confidence, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. David Stephen Cohen said, at the heart of it, I think the scariest thing for most people is having the people closest to you, the people that are supposed to love and take care of you, actively trying to get rid of you and make your life worse. Mm. And that is the scariest thing. Absolutely. God, I've been seeing so many news articles recently. I, uh, you see the, the girl, the little baby girl who went missing on Christmas Day? I don't even think I did. You didn't hear about that? Mm -mm. Like, I, it's like messed me up. <laughs> yeah, I would be. Mm. I, I watched the Casey Anthony oh, tapes or whatever. The, I know. She's already I said her it. piece. I watched it and I thought about it <laughs> for days and days mm. and days. God, it bothers me so much. They they did speak in that interview about how this was representation for, you know, an abused child. Yeah. And how Cohen would channel his own fear of his parents fighting. Mm. Mm -hmm. He said that the horrors from his childhood were reflective of the horrors that fans have discussed with him. And he said he really never thought about it that way before, but he knew that he drew on it at an unconscious level. He said he would hide in his room away from the fights. And he says probably just as much as pop culture, his contribution to courage is partly autobiographical. That's familiar to me. 
Yeah. Hiding away from the fights. Yeah. But having to listen to them while they happen. It's insane. Just the the headspace, you know, to write from that experience and then to have so many people touched by it and, you know, yeah. feeling represented and also feeling like, I don't know that there's not, not a word for it, but not alone, you know. Right. Feeling supported in some way by this. Yeah. One of the more ethereal, interesting, and perhaps ahead of its time elements of the show was the empathy. Yep. They also talked about this on the Fangoria article and how, despite the fear and terror, many of the villains are allowed to redeem themselves. Hmm. The blog said that they often make the scariest monster more tolerable, even if it doesn't seem warranted. And they do even eventually explore Eustace's abuse and his traumatic childhood with his own abusive mother. Do you remember that episode? No, I don't remember that, no. I remember it vaguely. Wow. Uh, They have an episode that references it. It shows how she treated Eustace. So now he's doing the same thing. The generational trauma. Right. Wow. A lot like we talked about with creators like Craig Bartlett. Yeah. Cohen speaks a lot about how it was important for both him and John Dilworth that the show balance the frightful and disturbing with deeper emotional plots and storylines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cohen said this helped young audiences cope with the fear. And, I mean, (laughs) despite remembering how genuinely scared the show made me, millennials are, on the whole, (laughs) pretty emotionally intelligent compared to generations past. And I'm not giving all that credit to Courage the Cowardly Dog. (laughs) Just this one show. (laughs) But I am saying it helped. (laughs) I think it helped us explore that further. If you watched it, it gave you a, a way to process certain feelings. Maybe you wouldn't have thought about or accessed otherwise. Right. Which was foundational to us as we were developing, you know, we were watching it at a very young age. But I mean, I would say that the entertainment on the whole at this time was doing that. Yes. And th- but this just like weaponized it. Yeah. Kind <laughs> you of. You know, in a way that like. This is going to stick with you. <laughs> yeah. This, this is intentional. Right. Whereas, I mean, a lot of the modern entertainment just doesn't do this. Yeah. It, not in the same, not to the same level. You're not going to find emotional depth. People back off of it now for some reason. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of cases, so, there's some that, that don't, but. I don't know why. My favorite media is the media that, that tells the full story. Yep. You know, that kind of pushes that envelope and is honest. Yeah. As honest as you can be. The characters are human. Cohen also believes that as well as the general impact on the audience, courage also influenced a whole new generation of artists and creators, which we've mentioned a couple times and as a theory. Yeah. Courage was unique, he said. I'm sure it influenced a lot of people and I like to think that the show is in the DNA of many of the new people who work in this business. Mm-hmm. He said a lot of times the influences are so subtle that you can't notice them, but those are the best kind of influences. Nice. Love that. So with all that said, we're kind of talking about from an audience perspective, what Courage did, the impact it had. I think this kind of brings me to a discussion of how Courage was received at the time. Mm -hmm. The show's premiere was at the time the highest rated in Cartoon Network's history. Wow, really? And actually, to my surprise, most critical analysis at the time did enjoy the show and praised the weird and ethereal imagination and texture. (laughs) It seems like they saw new techniques forming and they were fascinated right along with us, you know, the young audience watching. That's cool. It's so rare, I feel like, with the stuff. (laughs) Yeah, people liked it. People were like, uh, I can't remember. I don't think, I don't know if I have it quoted, but there was a critic that said something like, "It, it was good to see something so slanted gaining a following, like in that day and age, something slanted, like kids were drawn to it. Right. And he thought that was really cool. I was like, where are these, like, who are you, who are you guys? Like you hated Fern Gully, but you love courage. (laughs) (laughs) Probably different people. 
Oh, of course there are, there are different but people, but just like that same, like at the same time, you know, though. you know what I mean? Like that class of yeah. critics, you know, people that were writing critically about media in the nineties. This media just deserved a new class of critic. Yeah. Although common sense media did give it three out of five stars and I'm surprised it even got that much. Huh. It's cited over the top animated violence. <laughs> I would like to remind common sense media. Yeah, you tell them. <laughs> That the real star of the show was the psychological horror <laughs> because cartoon violence was the norm all the way back to Rocky and Bullwinkle and the Looney Tunes. Hell yeah. I mean, Wiley e. Coyote, it doesn't get any more violent than that. Nope. Tom and Jerry. Nope. I mean, Courage has like, you know, people getting pulled inside out. Like it's, it's violent. <laughs> it's kind of gross. Like, I just feel like, I feel like cartoons were violent by nature. Mm -hmm. The Roadrunner, like yeah. everybody getting smushed with an anvil. Anvils, like, TNT. Quicksand. So I, I'm not saying that courage wasn't violent. I'm just saying that the psychological horror was almost the new level that they were reaching. It was violent, but it was standard at that point. I feel like they it, were you know, they were reaching to psychological. Um, yeah, that was extremes. the next plane to explore. I feel like truly. Speaking of that, I would like to quote directly from this Vulture article by Sean Malin because I appreciate how he put it. Although I do have issue with the first sentence, and I think you'll see why. Okay. He said, for young viewers accustomed to the sparkly simplicity of Blossom Bubbles and Buttercup. What? That's what I have what? issue with. <laughs> well, because they're girls? I don't think he's ever seen Powerpuff Girls. He's never even seen the show. He saw the intro. There's some misogyny in this. Sorry, Sean. <laughs> Such imagery offered awe and terror in equal measure. Mm -hmm. Dilworth put many of his lifelong fascinations, what he calls his cosmos... On display in the episode, allusions to Salvador Dali, Tex Avery, yeah. people who behave like animals, animals who behave like people, a playful fusion of photographs, animations, music, and text, and profound expressions of affection and companionship, best embodied by Courage's catchphrase, the things I do for love. The things I do for love. <laughs> like Scooby-Doo, another easily spooked cartoon dog, Courage was a winning surrogate for those whose phobias were almost as powerful as their loyalties. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Almost as powerful. It's smart commentary. It's smart commentary. But it, I think it was good. Just the misogyny could scratch the line just, about. Yeah. That, why that, that line doesn't even need to exist. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I don't think Sean's seen Powerpuff Girls. It's okay. <laughs> I did. I watched Powerpuff Girls. I loved it. I love Powerpuff Girls at the time. Oh, Jojo. Jo, jo. And it's pretty dark. It's pretty dark. No, it's really dark. We're going to cover it. Mm -hmm. Well, at least episodes of it. Certain episodes. Definitely. Courage consistently performed well in ratings, probably because... Most of us just couldn't look away. Yeah. We've discussed that before. Yeah. Same thing, why we rewatched, why I rewatched things that hurt my soul, like All Dogs Go to Heaven, over and over and over, mm -hmm. because I couldn't look away and I wanted to figure out how to prevent that feeling. Right. What can I learn from this that's going to improve, you know, my, I don't know, reaction? Mm -hmm. How am I going to learn to live out this feeling? Like, it feels like it's going to do me in. It feels like this is it, but I know it's not. Yeah. And I guess just, like, the resilience is what I was building up in myself. I do remember actively watching Courage thinking, like, I'm not bullshitting. Like, I remember thinking, I can't wait to watch Courage and learn how to, like, survive the next scenario. Yeah. So, like, I know what to do. I haven't said it yet because I was kind of saving it for as we wrap up. I told you that I watched Courage in the dark, mostly. Yeah. Like, dead of night when my parents were asleep because I wasn't allowed to watch Courage the Cowardly Dog. Yep, yep. But the reason that I kept watching Courage 
And I told this to my parents on the occasions that I was caught watching the show that I wasn't supposed to watch, (laughs) was that I I told them this. I said, I needed to make sure courage was okay. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. Baby Kaylin just needed to make sure courage was okay. That's so innocent and sweet. Yeah, I didn't say it as a manipulation tactic to them. You meant that. I meant that. That's so sweet. I just needed to see that he was okay. That's so adorable. And that's going to be my mantra as we go through the season binge. And I'm telling you, I don't think I can watch it. You're going to be like, you have to make sure. We have to make sure courage, courage is, is okay. okay. We're here. This is, why, this is why we're doing this season binge because we have to make sure courage is okay. I feel like I'm going to like soothe some things in my child mind. Thing, episodes that I didn't get to finish or never saw um, because I do feel like there are some I, I watched seen. a lot of the episodes, but I, I guarantee there are some I, I didn't get to see. There are for so. sure some I haven't seen. Yeah. We'll work. We'll work into it. Work Man, up to it. We are just going to take care of our inner child. That's right. That's what we're here to do. Scared little baby. The Kaylin that was worried about courage. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for you. I'm excited too. <laughs> Though it was regarded as a creative success, it seemed to ultimately prove maybe just too niche. Like there was a very yeah. specific audience for this show. Right. Dilworth himself doesn't know why the show wasn't renewed after the fourth season. When he was asked that question in the university interview, he said, do I look like a TV cartoon executive? <laughs> <laughs> but he does acknowledge that the show had an appeal to the eccentric. You know, it ha- it mm-hmm. leaned on the edge of strange. He he does not deny this. Yeah. He said, we don't fit the establishment. <laughs> no. He said, Ed, Ed and Eddie went to five seasons. Other cartoons go much longer. Look at The Simpsons. Look at SpongeBob. Right. Right. And I'm not saying those shows aren't strange, but Courage was just different. It had a totally different appeal. It was a, it, it was attractive in a totally different way than any of those other shows. And to me, more so. I like Courage way better than any of those shows. It's the kind of show that... Sorry, SpongeBob. Yeah, it's going to have a very, very like niche audience. Like, you know, if it were a podcast, it would be... <laughs> <laughs> it would have a very select group of listeners who support it. And it might be loved by them, but that's it. Like us. And then like our darklings. <laughs> like our darklings. That's true. And you know, maybe Courage just start a Patreon. Maybe they would give five dollars or something like that. <laughs> if I do wonder, like I wonder what it would be like for something like Courage to get put on the air today. To be rebooted? To, not not or to just like re air. Because they did do um they did a short couple years back Mm -hmm. but it was like 3d it was different but it would something similar something in this vein something very children's horror what would it be like how would it be received by audiences today yeah so he didn't um it didn't come to a natural end they didn't conclude it it just they just didn't renew it they just didn't renew it i think he knew that they weren't going to ahead of time but still so do, um, do you know if they like capped it off if they finished the whole series I don't, I don't I don't remember how it ended. I don't know yet. I don't remember how it ended. Hmm. So we'll kind of have to figure that out. I guess we'll find as out. We go. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to cop a little bit more from the Vulture article. <laughs> Sean said, two decades later, the idea of a children's series unafraid to throw mythology, anthropomorphism, collage, surrealism, and vaudeville into one big, scary, delightful pink stew still astounds. I was like, I can't write anything better than that. I'm just going to, no. I like what he just said. Pull the quote. Yeah. He said that such a show ran for four years on a channel, which was then known for its Daffy cartoons, now seems like a minor miracle. Kind of does. He said, though Courage did kick off a streak of mature, dark animation on the network, from the neo-gothic Evil Concarne Mm -hmm. to the adult world building of Samurai Jack, those series were also canceled before their time. Yep. And he said, 
Most tellingly, in the 15 years since Courage went off the air, Cartoon Network still hasn't picked up another horror cartoon. That is insane to me. And that was 15 years then. So it's been 20 years now. Yeah. In 20 years, they really just haven't done anything like it. And like I said, I just wonder what that would look like today. But of course, today, Courage is a cult favorite. You know, when when they die young, that's what makes them famous, you know? James Dean. Honestly, that's true. Courage is the James Dean <laughs> of Cartoon He's Network. He's the James Dean of children's horror. Yeah, children's horror. And Pinocchio. Well, he's going to live forever, Pinocchio. That one. <laughs> he came back a few times. He'll die a hundred times and still come back, apparently. So I have one more fun thing for you as a surprise. Ooh, all right. It's going to derail us just a little bit before we conclude part two of our introduction to Courage. It's fine. I'm already derailed. I found some fan theories about the show. Oh, yeah. Um, they call them wild mass guesses on okay. TV tropes, which is fun. All right. And I thought I would mention a couple of these theories just as we're kicking off the series and we can kind of work together to look for evidence for or against some of these ideas and theories. Okay. Some of them have to do with like the like how this universe originated different connections between characters and, and things like that. Yeah. So I'll just read off a few. I was kind of going to ask you uh, some thoughts about that, but yeah, let's hear them. Yeah. Yeah. These I'm, again, I'm just pulling from the internet, baby. <laughs> yeah. like, this is... I was going to be like, do you think they're on earth? Where yeah. Is where this are place? they? Yeah. Like, what is question. this? I can't take credit for these theories, but I do find a lot of them really interesting. Yeah. So the first one that I read was that the cruel vet, one of the villains from the show, yeah. was trying to create super dogs after all. Because there are many other talking animals in the show, and yeah. some have supernatural powers. Yeah. So they said, they they think that this vet, or maybe the institute that he works for, performs similar experience. Wow. <laughs> performs similar experiments on other animals, which gave them human qualities. And in the case of Shirley, Fusili, and the Weremole, strange abilities. Yeah. And this could also explain how courage talks and seems to shapeshift. <laughs> and in that sense, the vet is the ultimate villain of the show. Wow, okay. That was their theory. These animals were just released or escaped. Pretty much. From the uh, establishment. They're all going batty. Yeah, wow. Okay. <laughs> all right. Another theory, this one I actually really like. That when I read this, I had to like sit back for a minute and be like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready for this. Let's do it. Courage the Cowardly Dog takes place in a setting after the end, in quotes. After the end is a trope on TV tropes okay. that it links to. So post-apocalyptic. Yes. Yeah, this makes sense. An atomic bomb was dropped in the middle of nowhere, and just a few people remained. One of them was Eustace's mother, mm -hmm. who, because of the atomic rays, had lost her hair. Okay. The other atomic rays caused a mutation in most animals, leading to animals like cats or laquac, and were also responsible for causing a genetic mutation in one of Courage's ancestors. Allowing him to speak. I have actually heard this before. Really? Yeah. I just- <laughs> I, I never I, had. I never thought about it until now. But yeah, I've heard that it was a, a radiation thing. Yeah. I, that never yeah. crossed my mind. That would explain why the landscape is so barren, why everything is so weird, yes. and why animals can talk and act like humans. It makes so much sense. This is probably my favorite of the theories. I was like, okay. But that makes so much sense. If we ever get to speak to John Dilworth, I want to bring up some of these theories. I haven't seen him like directly comment on any of it, and he may not be willing to, but- He may not want to, yeah. I would love to pick his brain on some of this. And honestly, knowing the guy, again, <laughs> as well as I know him now- As well as we all I feel know like he now. would- he would just deflect. I would ask that question and he'd be like, that wasn't my idea, but maybe like, you know, <laughs> just he would say just... something else. Yeah. Okay. Another theory, which I feel like I kind of 
assumed anyway, but it, to hear it spelled out is interesting. Yeah. The theory said that the whole show is from the point of view of a dog. All of the villains in the show are just normal people, but to the little dog, they seem scary. Hmm. They don't actually live in the middle of nowhere, but since his owners are too old to take him for walks or very far from the house, he only knows what's around his immediate property, yeah. and everything beyond that is nothing because he's never seen it. <laughs> that one does make sense too, but I don't like it's so it. Sad. It's sad. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that's more sad than like post-apocalyptic nowhere. Yeah, no, I would much prefer the post-apocalyptic radiation. I just, oh my God. That's so sad. I don't like that one at all. It hurts. Everything is nothing. And then it just makes me think of my little cats that are in the house every day. I know. And they think I don't that the only thing outside of the house is the vet. <laughs> is that why every little sound terrifies our animals? Yes, because they think the only thing that's out there is coming to get them. And it is. That's why we keep them inside and safe. That's true. <laughs> Another theory says that cats is actually red from All Dogs Go to Heaven too, which I would have to refresh myself, my memory on all of those go to heaven too, which we will. But this theory says that both of them are mean red cats who do evil deeds. And it could explain why cats is doing the things he does because he's collecting souls because he lost his privileges after the incident that happened with Gabriel's horn. And so the devil sends him to earth to steal the souls of two pure beings, which is why he's always after Courage and Muriel. That's way too far-fetched. <laughs> That's way too extreme. It's, They're pure souls and he has to kill them uh, to get back to hell. No, you can't have universe crossovers to explain the single universe that exists I mean, hey, independently of the other one. You can't have that. No. Hey, mm-hmm. but Scooby-Doo. They crossed over to That's Scooby-Doo. That's not canon. So. That's not canon. That was 2021. <laughs> Everything that happened after the original run of the show is not canon. And I don't I don't buy. disagree. The I original guy wasn't even involved. No. Mm-mm. I don't disagree with you. It was a, it was a money grab. Fair. Absolutely fair. Just like sequels, money grabs. <laughs> all of them, no. All of them. Not all of them. All of them. <laughs> there are a few theories on Courage being a supernatural being himself, such as Cerberus, the guardian of the underworld. I've also which heard that he was <laughs> his shape shifting abilities and why nobody ever understands him. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's just he's he's trying to guard the underworld, basically. Like mythology. And I mean, knowing Weirdly, I've heard that, yeah. Knowing that mythology was one of it wasn't explicitly stated in anything that i said so don't think you're crazy if you didn't hear me say it but in the material that i'm reading a lot of people reference the mythology of course ramses you know we've got a lot of these references to ancient things what so, was the god's name cerberus i'm thinking like anubis oh yeah okay like the egyptian god of death right yeah maybe you're gonna google that mm-hmm. let me google that the ancient egyptian god of the dead Represented by a jackal or the figure of a man with the head of a jackal. Mm-hmm. And a jackal is just a, it's, you know, it's a dog. Canine. It's canine. God of the, what did you say? That's the Egyptian <laughs> god of the dead. Okay, gotcha. Dead. D-E-D. Dead. Dead. Another theory is that Eustace and Mary, this is kind of sweet and kind of, I don't know how I feel about this, honestly. Sad as well, but it wouldn't be courage if it wasn't sad. Sure. The theory says that Eustace and Muriel used to work for the government or live near Area 51. Mm-hmm. It says they used to be top secret agents charged with battling aliens, monsters, and all other manner of supernatural life forms. And at some point, one of two things happened. Either something happened during a mission that erased their memories, mm. or when they retired, the government themselves took their memories so that they couldn't potentially leak classified information. So this is why creepy stuff seems drawn to them. Yeah. And why they are 
mostly oblivious to That's it. a very common uh, government conspiracy theory. I know. About the old memory wipes memory and stuff, especially wipe. related to Area 51, like to do with that. I know. Very interesting. And it, it also kind of, a couple that are similar that I won't get into, but a lot of them have theories about, you know, one or both of Eustace and Muriel having dementia or some sort of degenerative disease yeah. that prevents them from being able to engage the no, way th- that they I think that's the actual show <laughs> like <laughs> sure I think they actually have that I don't disagree I guess it's so sad I'd rather I don't know what I'd rather honestly I don't even know they're all bad options <laughs> no they're not good options so I saved None of what will probably be one of your favorites for last it's pretty simple oh. it's it's very very simple but it calls harkens back to some of our other episodes oh huh, sweet this person theorized that nowhere is literally nowhere mm-hmm it's a void between worlds. Yeah. It's a liminal space. It doesn't actually exist. Ooh. And it's strangely easy to enter by accident because of all the bizarre visitors and monsters. Yeah. It doesn't explain how Eustace and Mario got there, but they decided to stay. They don't even realize that they're not they're not on a plane. They're just in between. <laughs> and that's why all of these it. weird things are just flying around. Yeah. That makes sense too. They're kind of at a crossroads between worlds. It's time between time. Like it, it's it's a timeless place that literally is uh, also uh, spaceless or placeless it's nowhere yeah it would explain a lot Mm -hmm. oh that's wild yeah listener let us know which theory if any maybe you have a different one let us know your theories about courage as we embark Mm -hmm. on the season bench we would love to hear from you i don't know if i ever really had one myself but i just always took it as i knew that the desert was a weird place i was familiar with the concept of Area 51, like aliens and like Roswell was a famous show at the time to do with like aliens and all that kind of crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, named our family dog Roswell because of that. <laughs> so I was very familiar with this concept of like just weirdness out in the middle of nowhere. Like yeah. it, it just made sense to me for some reason. The Bermuda Triangle. Yes. Yeah. Anything that's isolated. I, as a child, was terrified of the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> I was fascinated, but I knew I would never go there. No, it just scared me that a place like that could conceivably exist. It just... I was like, just, wait, that's supposed to be pretend. <laughs> it's not supposed to be real. What do you mean you can go there? But like, you know, we always say this, but like the courage landscape operates within this weird sort of nightmare logic of like anything can happen and the weirdest things could just come walking out of the shadows and just disrupt your day mm-hmm. and affect your whole life. And change what you do and you have to like beat it somehow. Yeah. You have to survive that nightmare. And guess what? Every time. That's really just an analogy for daily life. Oh my God. Especially if you struggle with your mental health. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, huh? That's how I feel. I'm battling space chickens all the time. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) One day without a space chicken. (laughs) That would be amazing. (laughs) Hey man, you doing okay? Dude, I got the space chickens today. (laughs) Got more chicken pox eggs and mm-hmm. I'm going to save the old bag. <laughs> you know. Poor courage. Another day, another demon. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we've reached the point for our final thoughts. Oh, final as thoughts. As we're kicking off our season binge. While a Google search will turn up queries like, is courage the cowardly dog okay for kids? <laughs> and is courage the cowardly dog traumatizing? Honestly, I think the answers are both somehow yes. Yep. I think the depth of the topics that are explored is it's worthwhile for, you know, a young audience. Yeah. And like we keep saying, it has affected us so deeply, even looking back at it. Right. You know, 20 some odd years later. Mm-hmm. 
I agree. I think kids should watch it and kids probably will be traumatized. And in some ways, I think it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's no more traumatizing than just life is traumatizing. Right. I mean, we know we're learning more about trauma and mm-hmm. what that means as a whole, on the whole, all of humanity. Yeah. We're all learning what trauma is. And and I think it's, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because people say like, life is trauma. Um, the first thing you ever experience is traumatic, which is your birth. Mm-hmm. And like, True. they're like, yeah, maybe you don't consciously remember your birth, but it's stuck with you. Absolutely. It sticks with you. So I think something can My be- first several months we're in a hospital. <laughs> oh yeah. Yours especially. I mean, yeah, your trauma. first about two months. Yeah. Probably why, probably just began your health yeah. trauma, your health um, journey, anxiety. But anxiety. I've had health anxiety all my life. And you're right. That probably had a lot to do with Part it. Part of your subconscious. And beyond that, also the way that my parents treated me yeah, yeah, yeah. as a response to their trauma of me being born into that situation. Right. I don't think, you know, I'm not saying my parents caused my health anxiety. That's all up in my own noggin. <laughs> <laughs> that's just I, there. Yeah. I, that's been there. That was there. But yeah, you know. But like things like courage, things that are technically children's horror or children's whatever that does tackle these uh, stronger themes, these much more quote unquote mature adult themes. Mm-hmm. They're not inappropriate. They're just right. not mature. the status quo. They're just right. a little bit more mature. It's mature. Um, That's the word for it. Like the themes are mature. Yeah. It's not inappropriate. It's just mm-hmm. the level that you're going to is not right. common for right. a cartoon necessarily. And these things can be very instructional and very educational. And again, like we were talking about before, courage can't, it, it probably, he probably did represent that. He did embody that, like, you're not alone sort of concept of like, you may have your own fears. You may have your own worries and concerns at home. And you might be as small as I am and as helpless as I am. But, you know, you can sit and live out this make-believe experience that isn't happening to you once a week mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. And we can get through this together. Mm-hmm. And if you can see me do it, then you can do it too. Right. And it's it's empowering, empowering in a way. That's the word that I feel like I've been trying to think of for like an hour and a half. <laughs> well, there you go. Empowering. it In a way isn't an empowering show. It really is. And that is something that I love about the show because you can feel in a lot of instances, because it's very introspective too, Mm -hmm. as as a show. And you can feel John Dilworth's wonder Mm -hmm. and like whimsy and like fascination with life. Yeah. And also his compassion and empathy. Right. Right. All of those things wind themselves into this show. It comes through. And I feel like it's underestimated because if people take it at face value, they're just going to see some weird animation, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just so much more to it than that. So much more. And we can't wait to get into it. We can't wait to get into it. It's like it's like trying to reference um, the opposite of courage and just watching the intro to Powerpuff Girls and going sugar spice and everything nice. Yeah. Oh, that must oh, be what this show's the show's about. The <laughs> sparkly glitter of this little girly uh-huh. show. Pretty much. No. There's so much more to the stuff than that, guys. And you, and know, you it, know it, and that's you're why here. you're here. Exactly. Wow. Same, same, same brain, brain wave link. Wave link. That's that's us. Look at you. Look at me. There, there We're you doing have fingers it. Fingers back and forth. We're doing fingers together. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, man. <laughs> For you, darklings, we are diving back into what is one of the most feared pieces of media from our childhood. Mm-hmm. The things we do for love. The things we do for love. The things we do for love. Oh. You got to do it more strained, right? Like <laughs> his voice always has that edge to it. <laughs> the things we do for love. The things we do for your $5 on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey guys, we have a Patreon now in case you didn't hear it yet. We have a Patreon. We have a Patreon. Please join us. 
we have a discord where you can talk with us and other like-minded darklings yeah and lots of other bonus content that we're going to be preparing for you Mm-hmm. So please come check it out. And tell us what you want to see more of on the Patreon because we're still figuring that we, out. We heard some of you that, you know, you like, you want to do like a watch party or like a live event where you interact with us on the internets. Not saying never. I'm just saying that we are both so anxious. Uh, we're going to have to work up to that one. <laughs> <laughs> we could have fun. We're going to have to work up to it. But I'm not saying never. I think with our Patreon group, when we're all friends and we feel comfortable and, you know, you're not there. To, I mean, I guess if you really, like, hate us and you want to pay us $5 just to hate on us, that's fine. Like, do you. Hey, no, you can hate me. Yeah, If you want to totally. hate me and you want to pay me $5 just to hate on me a little mm-hmm. bit, that's fine. That's fine with me. That's fine. I hate myself every day for free and I have lose exactly. money. Exactly. Same. You'll lose money. I'm, yeah, I'm losing money. I'm paying to hate myself. <laughs> We're sideshow freaks. You can pay if us to hate us. If we're, if we're in a uh, nurturing environment with people that care about us, we'll we might out. be able to pull off a watch party or a live hangout one of these days. And that link is patreon.com slash podcast, which you can also find in this episode description. You can find it on our website. We have linked to it on our website, I guarantee. And our if website, you're looking we've for posted website, about it on social media for sure, too. That's prettydark.com, and you can find that link in our the bio of our instagram profile um facebook as well it's everywhere yes, you can get to our social from our website and you can get to our website from our social Mm-hmm. because that's how you do these things apparently yep anything else if, you ha- if you're listening on a platform that has our podcast player one of the buttons <laughs> is oh, going to yeah. be a patreon probably take you there nice i just need to figure that out first <laughs> it'll happen soon nice but anyway yeah that's all i got yeah one hell of an intro to courage wow sorry Stellar guys research. two parts no. Two parts. We both did research for this, so we Two knew coming parts. into it we were going to have a lot of ground to cover. Which so, I'm so pleased with because I have been slightly concerned that we wouldn't have enough content to do Courage. Oh boy, we're always going to have enough content. But we are the just finding us, out how much there is. Uh-huh. The worry for us should almost always be that we're going to have too much. <laughs> too much. That is. <laughs> Which is why you should come join us on Patreon because that's where <laughs> all of that stuff is going to live. That's where it's going to live. Also, so we can keep affording to do this. Exactly. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. We're going to see you next time. Um, I don't think our next episode will be the first episode of Courage, but it'll be something. We'll figure yeah, it out. We'll have something fun. And you'll know when it happens. Something dark. That's for something sure. Something dark. Something pretty dark. <laughs> All right. Well, five dollars and five stars. Five dollars, five, five stars. Five stars. Even just five stars. Like... Any rating, review, share, Mm -hmm. um, if you want to share us with your friends, every little bit helps us do what we love to do. Thanks again, everybody. Have a good one. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So, until next time, sweet dreams, everyone.